Section 6. A Ride Across the Peloponnese. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Rob Marland in Nauplia. A Ride Across the Peloponnese. Section 6. Tyrins and Nauplia. We left Argos at half past six, and about seven we passed Tyrins, which lies only fifty yards from the road. Dark though it was, we could not miss seeing this famous fortress, which dates from the very earliest days of Greece. Warly Tyrins, Homer calls it, and Warly indeed it is. It's a low mound, some 250 yards long by 50 broad, and not a 100 feet in height, surrounded by walls whose makers might well have passed for more than mortal among the men of old. Huge uncut blocks, some as only a wagon with a strong yoke of oxen could lift, are piled one upon the other in a sort of rude order. Though no tool has been used, and no mortar binds the blocks together, the surface presented to outside view is yet wonderfully regular and unbroken. This wall, which is from 12 to 15 feet in height and 25 feet thick, runs right round the mound with hardly a break. Clambering up in one place where several blocks had fallen, we gained the interior of the fortress, which is mostly overgrown with nettles and other rough herbage. On the north side, access to the centre is given by a curious subterraneous passage, its roof arched with slabs leaning over against each other, and pierced here and there with loopholes. There are other galleries of a like nature, though we saw only this one. The weird grandeur of this giant's fortress, whose characteristic features lost nothing by the dim light in which we saw them, filled one with irrepressible awe, we puny mortals of today could but vaguely wonder how, at a time when, as far as we know, the crane and the pulley were unheard of, these great blocks had been brought hither and poised one upon the other with such perfect nicety that the wall which they compose has lasted now probably for nearly three thousand years and seems likely to last as long as the world itself. The name of Tyrins is linked with that of Perseus, and of Hercules, who is often called the hero of Tyrins, and who slew the Hydra in the Linnaean marshes hard by. Men of Tyrins took part long afterwards in the Battle of Plataea, and it was then destroyed, like its neighbour Mycenae, and probably about the same time, by jealous Argos. Returning to the carriage, we drove rapidly on to Nauplia, passing, as we neared the town, through a grand avenue of white poplars, the tree sacred to Hercules, and by gardens sweet with the perfume of orange blossom. It was about eight o'clock when we entered the big gate of the town and rattled along under the shadow of the citadel rock into the square around which the hotels are built. Nauplia was, with the single exception of Athens, the most modern-looking town we saw in Greece. The streets are wide, the houses high and roomy, and the whole place gives one the idea of a town which has seen better days. This indeed is the case. It has, from its position, always been a flourishing seaport, and after the Greeks had won their independence from Turkish rule, it was, under its then name of Napoli di Romania, relic of Venetian occupation, made the capital of the new kingdom, and had a population of some 12,000. But since the removal of the government to Athens, it has sunk in importance, 
though still one of the most active ports on the east coast of the Peloponnese. Pausanias tells us that Nauplia was first inhabited by a colony of Egyptians brought by Danaeus to Argos, and from its position it seems likely that this would be one of the first spots to attract immigrants from the east. In Greek history it appears chiefly as the seaport of Argos. In the Middle Ages it was held and fought for in succession by Franks, Venetians and Turks. The ancient tradition which attributed its name to Nauplius, son of Poseidon and father of Palamedes, has left its trace in the name Mount Palamede, still borne by the grand rock of the citadel. The next day, April 12th, being the anniversary of the Epinastasis, or national uprising against Turkish tyranny, we were aroused as early as five o'clock by the sound of bugles summoning the soldiers, and I suppose the people generally, to take part in a triumphal march round the town. The musical accompaniment to this demonstration broke in upon our dreams, and lasted so long that further sleep was out of the question. The blare of trumpets was followed by cries of Chala! Chala! Milk! Milk! When we got out into the square below, we found that these proceeded from various boys and girls who walked up and down with leathern bags of milk under their left arm. At a signal, one of these, a rosy-cheeked maiden, who alone, we noticed, was correct enough to use the definite article in her cry, Tohala, came running up to us and, tilting up her bag, poured out a glass of delicious fresh milk, holding herself overpaid with a couple of lepta, equals one pence. We had intended to start for Epidaurus at six o'clock, but our horses did not appear till after seven, and it was not till half-past that we last rode out of Nauplia. Passing again through the Venetian gateway, by which we had come in the night before, we turned sharp to the right and began to ascend the mountain pass behind the town. The road was very stony, and the country, when we had got out of the plain, exceedingly wild and barren. The dry, chalky soil seemed to produce nothing but rough grass and a few stinted shrubs. When, however, we had passed the summit of the pass and began to descend on the other side, we seemed to have come into a totally different zone of vegetation. The rich brown earth produced in luxuriant abundance laurestinus, oleanders, figs, vines and olives. Here and there stretched fields of waving barley, while about our feet the ground was gay with flowers. The most conspicuous was a splendid red poppy with a black cross in the centre, which seems on the east coast of Greece to take the place of the scarlet anemone which abounds on the west coast. The cistus, a low shrub with a white flower rather like a dog rose, was also very plentiful, and a small kind of holly with coloured leaves. About two o'clock we came suddenly in sight of the sea, with Aegina in the distance, and the low hills of Attica beyond. The scene was lovely beyond description. We were riding through a thick olive wood whose silver-grey foliage made a fine contrast with the bright blue of sea and sky. The sun shone brilliantly, and masses of white cloud cast their shadows down the steep hillsides. The air was full of the breath of spring and of the joyous song of birds. An hour's ride through this very paradise brought us down to the little harbour of Epidaurus, where we soon found a sailing boat to carry us across to the Piraeus. And so our ride across the Peloponnese was over. A week not free from discomfort, a traveller must make up his mind to that, 
but also full of intense delight, had shown us some of the beauties of Greek landscape, had revealed to us some of the glories of Greek art, had brought us face to face with places long familiar to our minds in Greek legend and history. The greatest was yet to come. Not many miles across the blue waters at our feet, we can see the hills of Attica, locked in whose embrace lies Athens. End of section 6 and end of A Ride Across the Peloponnese by George Macmillan.